0: The Cloak by Nikolai Gogol Part 2 Petrovich's eye was indeed very much askew after Saturday. His head drooped, and he was very sleepy. But for all that, as soon as he knew what it was a question of, it seemed as though Satan jogged his memory. Impossible, said he. Please to order a new one. Thereupon, Akaky Akakievich handed over the ten-kopeck piece. Thank you, sir. "'I will drink your good health,' said Petrovich. "'But as for the cloak, don't trouble yourself about it. "'It is good for nothing. "'I will make you a capital new one. "'So let us settle about it now.' Akaki Akakievich was still for mending it, but Petrovich would not hear of it, and said, "'I shall certainly have to make you a new one, "'and you may depend upon it that I shall do my best. "'It may even be, as the fashion goes, "'that the collar can be fastened by silver hooks under a flap.' Then Akaky Akakievich saw that it was impossible to get along without a new cloak, and his spirit sank utterly. How, in fact, was it to be done? Where was the money to come from? He must have some new trousers, and pay a debt of long-standing to the shoemaker for putting new tops to his old boots, and he must order three shirts from the seamstress and a couple of pieces of linen. In short, all his money must be spent." And even if the director should be so kind as to order him to receive forty-five or even fifty rubles instead of forty, it would be a mere nothing, a mere drop in the ocean towards the funds necessary for a cloak. Although he knew that Petrovich was often wrong-headed enough to blurt out some outrageous price so that even his own wife could not refrain from exclaiming, "'Have you lost your senses, you fool?' At one time he would not work at any price." and now it was quite likely that he had named a higher sum than the cloak would cost. But although he knew that Petrovich would undertake to make a cloak for eighty rubles, still, where was he to get the eighty rubles from? He might possibly manage half. Yes, half might be procured, but where was the other half to come from? But the reader must first be told where the first half came from. Akaki Akakievich had a habit of putting, for every ruble he spent, a groschen, into a small box, fastened with lock and key, and with a slit in the top for the reception of money. At the end of every half-year he counted over the head of coppers, and changed it for silver. This he had done for a long time, and in the course of years the sum had mounted up to over forty rubles. Thus he had one half on hand. But where was he to find the other half? Where was he to get another forty rubles from?' Akaky Akakievich thought and thought, and decided that it would be necessary to curtail his ordinary expenses for the space of one year at least, to dispense with tea in the evening, to burn no candles, and, if there was anything which he must do, to go into his landlady's room and work by her light. When he went into the street, he must walk as lightly as he could and as cautiously upon the stones, almost on tiptoe, in order not to wear his heels down in too short a time he must give the laundress as little to wash as possible, and, in order not to wear out his clothes, he must take them off as soon as he got home, and wear only his cotton dressing-gown, which had been long and carefully saved. To tell the truth, it was a little hard for him at first to accustom himself to these deprivations. But he got used to them at length, after a fashion, and all went smoothly. He even got used to being hungry in the evening— but he made up for it by treating himself, so to say, in spirit, by bearing ever in mind the idea of his future cloak. From that time forth, his existence seemed to become, in some way, fuller, as if he were married, or as if some other man lived in him, as if, in fact, he were not alone, and some pleasant friend had consented to travel along life's path with him, the friend being no other than the cloak with thick wadding and a strong lining incapable of wearing out. He became more lively, and even his character grew firmer, like that of a man who has made up his mind and set himself a goal. From his face and gait, doubt and indecision, all hesitating and wavering, disappeared of themselves. Fire gleamed in his eyes, and occasionally the boldest and most daring ideas flitted through his mind. Why not, for instance, have Martin fur on the collar? The thought of this almost made him absent-minded. Once, in copying a letter, he nearly made a mistake, so that he exclaimed almost aloud, Ugh! and crossed himself. Once, in the course of every month, he had a conference with Petrovich on the subject of the cloak, where it would be better to buy the cloth, and the color, and the price. He always returned home satisfied, though troubled, reflecting that the time would come at last when it could all be bought, and then the cloak made. The affair progressed more briskly than he had expected, for beyond all his hopes, the director awarded neither forty nor forty-five rubles for Akaky Akakievich's share, but sixty. Whether he suspected that Akaky Akakievich needed a cloak, or whether it was merely chance, at all events, twenty extra rubles were by this means provided. This circumstance hastened matters. Two or three months more of hunger, and Akaky Akakievich had accumulated about eighty rubles. His heart, generally so quiet, began to throb. On the first possible day, he went shopping in company with Petrovich. They bought some very good cloth, and at a reasonable rate, too for they had been considering the matter for 6 months and rarely let a month pass without their visiting the shops to inquire prices petrovich himself said that no better cloth could be had for lining they selected a cotton stuff but so firm and thick that petrovich declared it to be better than silk and even prettier and more glossy they did not buy the marten fur because it was in fact dear but in its stead, they picked out the very best of catskin, which could be found in the shop, and which might, indeed, be taken for Martin at a distance. Petrovich worked at the cloak two whole weeks, for there was a great deal of quilting, otherwise, it would have been finished sooner. He charged twelve rubles for the job. It could not possibly have been done for less. It was all sewed with silk in small double seams, and Petrovich went over each seam afterwards with his own teeth. "'stamping in various patterns. "'It was, it is difficult to say precisely on what day, "'but probably the most glorious one "'in Akaky Akakievich's life "'when Petrovich at length brought home the cloak. "'He brought it in the morning, "'before the hour when it was necessary "'to start for the department. "'Never did a cloak arrive so exactly in the nick of time, "'for the severe cold had set in "'and it seemed to threaten to increase.' Petrovich brought the cloak himself as befits a good tailor on his countenance was a significant expression such as Akaky Akakievich had never beheld there he seemed fully sensible that he had done no small deed and crossed a gulf separating tailors who put in linings and execute repairs from those who make new things he took the cloak out of the pocket handkerchief in which he had brought it the handkerchief was fresh from the laundress and he put it in his pocket for use. Taking out the cloak, he gazed proudly at it, held it up with both hands, and flung it skillfully over the shoulders of Akaky Akakievich. Then he pulled it and fitted it down behind with his hand, and he draped it around Akaky Akakievich without buttoning it. Akaky Akakievich, like an experienced man, wished to try the sleeves. Petrovich helped him on with them, and it turned out that the sleeves were satisfactory also. In short, the cloak appeared to be perfect, and most seasonable. Petrovich did not neglect to observe that it was only because he lived in a narrow street, and had no signboard, and had known Akaky Akakievitch so long, that he had made it so cheaply. But that if he had been in business on the Nevsky prospect, he would have charged seventy-five rubles for the making alone." Akaki Akakievich did not care to argue this point with Petrovich. He paid him, thanked him, and set out at once in his new cloak for the department. Petrovich followed him, and pausing in the street, gazed long at the cloak in the distance, after which he went to one side expressly to run through a crooked alley and emerge again into the street beyond to gaze once more upon the cloak from another point, namely, directly in front." Meantime, Akaky Akakievich went on in holiday mood. He was conscious every second of the time that he had a new cloak on his shoulders, and several times he laughed with internal satisfaction. In fact, there were two advantages. One was its warmth, the other its beauty. He saw nothing of the road, but suddenly found himself at the department. He took off his cloak in the anteroom, looked it over carefully, and confided it to the special care of the attendant. It is impossible to say how precisely it was that everyone in the department knew at once that Akaky Akakievich had a new cloak, and that the cape no longer existed. All rushed at the same moment into the ante-room to inspect it. They congratulated him, and said pleasant things to him, so that he began at first to smile, and then to grow ashamed. When all surrounded him and said that the new cloak must be christened, and that he must at least give them all a party, Akaky Akakievitch lost his head completely, and did not know where he stood, what to answer, or how to get out of it. He stood blushing all over for several minutes, trying to assure them with great simplicity that it was not a new cloak, that it was, in fact, the old cape. At length, one of the officials, assistant to the head clerk, in order to show that he was not at all proud, and on good terms with his inferiors, said, "'So be it. Only I will give the party instead of Akaky Akakievich. I invite you all to tea with me tonight. It just happens to be my name-day, too.' The officials naturally at once offered the assistant clerk their congratulations, and accepted the invitation with pleasure. Akaky Akakievich would have declined, but all declared that it was discourteous— that it was simply a sin and a shame, and that he could not possibly refuse. Besides, the notion became pleasant to him when he recollected that he should thereby have a chance of wearing his new cloak in the evening also. That whole day was truly a most triumphant festival for Akaki Akakievich. He returned home in the most happy frame of mind, took off his cloak, and hung it carefully on the wall, admiring afresh the cloth and the lining." then he brought out his old worn-out cloak for comparison. He looked at it and laughed, so vast was the difference. And long after dinner he laughed again when the condition of the cape recurred to his mind. He dined cheerfully, and after dinner wrote nothing, but took his ease for a while on the bed until it got dark. Then he dressed himself leisurely, put on his cloak, and stepped out into the street." Where the host lived, unfortunately we cannot say. Our memory begins to fail us badly. The houses and streets in St. Petersburg have become so mixed up in our head that it is very difficult to get anything out of it again in proper form. This much is certain, that the official lived in the best part of the city, and therefore it must have been anything but near to Akaky Akakievich's residence. Akaki Akakievich was first obliged to traverse a kind of wilderness of deserted, dimly lighted streets. But in proportion as he approached the officials' quarter of the city, the streets became more lively, more populous, and more brilliantly illuminated. Pedestrians began to appear, handsomely dressed ladies were more frequently encountered, the men had otter-skin collars to their coats, Shabby sleighmen with their wooden railed sledges, stuck over with brass-headed nails, became rarer, whilst, on the other hand, more and more drivers in red velvet caps, lacquered sledges, and bearskin coats began to appear, and carriages with rich hammercloths flew swiftly through the streets, their wheels scrunching the snow. Akaky Akakievich gazed upon all this as upon a novel sight. He had not been in the streets during the evening for years— He halted out of curiosity before a shop window to look at a picture representing a handsome woman who had thrown off her shoe, thereby baring her whole foot in a very pretty way. Whilst behind her, the head of a man with whiskers and a handsome mustache peeped through the doorway of another room. Akaki Akakievich shook his head and laughed, and then went on his way. Why did he laugh? either because he had met with a thing utterly unknown, but for which everyone cherishes, nevertheless, some sort of feeling. Or else, he thought, like many officials, well, those French, what is to be said? If they do go in for anything of that sort, why? But possibly he did not think at all. Akaky Akakievich at length reached the house in which the head clerk's assistant lodged. He lived in fine style. The staircase was lit by a lamp, His apartment being on the second floor. On entering the vestibule, Akaky Akakievich beheld a whole row of galoshes on the floor. Among them, in the center of the room, stood a samovar, humming and emitting clouds of steam. On the walls hung all sorts of coats and cloaks, among which there were even some with beaver collars or velvet facings. Beyond, the buzz of conversation was audible and became clear and loud when the servant came out with a trayful of empty glasses, cream jugs, and sugar bowls. It was evident that the officials had arrived long before, and had already finished their first glass of tea. Akaky Akakievich, having hung up his own cloak, entered the inner room. Before him all at once appeared lights, officials, pipes, and card tables, and he was bewildered by a sound of rapid conversation rising from all the tables, and the noise of moving chairs. He halted very awkwardly in the middle of the room, wondering what he ought to do. But they had seen him. They received him with a shout, and all thronged at once into the ante-room, and there took another look at his cloak. Akaky Akakievich, although somewhat confused, was frank-hearted, and could not refrain from rejoicing when he saw how they praised his cloak— Then, of course, they all dropped him and his cloak, and returned, as was proper, to the table set out for whist. All this, the noise, the talk, and the throng of people, was rather overwhelming to Akakievich. He simply did not know where he stood, or where to put his hands, his feet, and his whole body. Finally, he sat down by the players, looked at the cards, gazed at the face of one and another— and after a while began to gape, and to feel that it was wearisome the more so, as the hour was already long past when he usually went to bed. He wanted to take leave of the host, but they would not let him go, saying that he must not fail to drink a glass of champagne in honour of his new garment. In the course of an hour, supper, consisting of vegetable salad, cold veal, pastry, confectioner's pies, and champagne, was served. They made Akaky Akakievich drink two glasses of champagne, after which he felt things grow livelier. Still, he could not forget that it was twelve o'clock, and that he should have been at home long ago. In order that the host might not think of some excuse for detaining him, he stole out of the room quickly, sawed out in the anteroom his cloak, which, to his sorrow, he found lying on the floor, brushed it, picked off every speck upon it, put it on his shoulders, and descended the stairs to the street. In the street all was still bright. Some petty shops, those permanent clubs of servants and all sorts of folks, were open. Others were shut, but nevertheless showed a streak of light the whole length of the door crack, indicating that they were not yet free of company, and that probably some domestics, male and female, were finishing their stories and conversations— whilst leaving their masters in complete ignorance as to their whereabouts. Akaky Akakievich went on in a happy frame of mind. He even started to run, without knowing why, after some lady, who flew past like a flash of lightning. But he stopped short, and went on very quietly as before, wondering why he had quickened his pace. Soon there spread before him those deserted streets, which are not cheerful in the daytime, to say nothing of the evening. Now they were even more dim and lonely. The lanterns began to grow rarer. Oil, evidently, had been less liberally supplied. Then came wooden houses and fences. Not a soul anywhere. Only the snow sparkled in the streets and mournfully veiled the low-roofed cabins with their closed shutters. He approached the spot where the street crossed a vast square with houses barely visible on its farther side a square which seemed a fearful desert. Afar, a tiny spark glimmered from some watchman's box, which seemed to stand on the edge of the world. Akaky akakievich's cheerfulness diminished at this point in a marked degree. He entered the square not without an involuntary sensation of fear, as though his heart warned him of some evil. He glanced back, and on both sides it was like a sea about him. No, it is better not to look, he thought, and went on, closing his eyes. When he opened them, to see whether he was near the end of the square, he suddenly beheld, standing just before his very nose, some bearded individuals of precisely what sort he could not make out. All grew dark before his eyes, and his heart throbbed. "'Of course the cloak is mine!' said one of them in a loud voice, seizing hold of his collar. Akaky Akakievich was about to shout help when the second man thrust a fist about the size of an official's head at his very mouth, muttering, just you dare to scream. Akaky Akakievich felt them strip off his cloak and give him a kick. He fell headlong upon the snow and felt no more. In a few minutes he recovered consciousness and rose to his feet, but no one was there. He felt that it was cold in the square, and that his cloak was gone. He began to shout, but his voice did not appear to reach the outskirts of the square. In despair, but without ceasing to shout, he started at a run across the square, straight towards the watch-box, beside which stood the watchman, leaning on his halberd, and apparently curious to know what kind of a customer was running towards him shouting. Akaky Akakievich ran up to him, and began in a sobbing voice to shout that he was asleep, and attended to nothing, and did not see when a man was robbed. The watchman replied that he had seen two men stop him in the middle of the square, but supposed that they were friends of his, and that, instead of scolding vainly, he had better go to the police on the morrow, so that they might make a search for whoever had stolen the cloak. Akaky Akakievich ran home, and arrived in a state of complete disorder, his hair which grew very thinly upon his temples and the back of his head all tousled, his body, arms, and legs covered with snow. The old woman, who was mistress of his lodgings, on hearing a terrible knocking, sprang hastily from her bed, and with only one shoe on, ran to open the door, pressing the sleeve of her chemise to her bosom out of modesty. But when she had opened it, she fell back on beholding Akaky Akakievich in such a condition. When he told her about the affair, she clasped her hands and said that he must go straight to the district chief of police, for his subordinate would turn up his nose, promise well, and drop the matter there. The very best thing to do, therefore, would be to go to the district chief, whom she knew, because Finnish Anna, her former cook, was now nurse at his house. She often saw him passing the house, and he was at church every Sunday, praying, but at the same time gazing cheerfully at everybody, so that he must be a good man, judging from all appearances. Having listened to this opinion, Akaky Akakievich betook himself sadly to his room. And how he spent the night there— "'anyone who can put himself in another's place "'may readily imagine. "'Early in the morning, "'he presented himself at the district chief's, "'but was told the official was asleep. "'He went again at ten, "'and was again informed that he was asleep. "'At eleven, and they said, "'The superintendent is not at home. "'At dinner time, "'and the clerks in the ante-room "'would not admit him on any terms, "'and insisted upon knowing his business.' so that at last, for once in his life, Akaky Akakievich felt an inclination to show some spirit, and said curtly that he must see the chief in person, that they ought not to presume to refuse him entrance, that he came from the Department of Justice, and that when he complained to them, they would see. The clerks dared make no reply to this, and one of them went to call the chief, who listened to the strange story of the theft of the coat. Instead of directing his attention to the principal points of the matter, he began to question Akaky Akakievich. Why was he going home so late? Was he in the habit of doing so, or had he been to some disorderly house? So that Akaky Akakievich got thoroughly confused and left him, without knowing whether the affair of his cloak was in proper train or not. All that day, for the first time in his life, he never went near the department. The next day he made his appearance, very pale, and in his old cape, which had become even more shabby. The news of the robbery of the cloak touched many, although there were some officials present who never lost an opportunity, even such a one as the present, of ridiculing Akaky Akakievich. They decided to make a collection for him on the spot, but the officials had already spent a great deal in subscribing for the director's portrait and for some book, at the suggestion of the head of that division, who was a friend of the author. And so the sum was trifling. One of them, moved by pity, resolved to help Akaki Akakievich with some good advice, at least, and told him that he ought not to go to the police, for although it might happen that a police officer, wishing to win the approval of his superiors, might hunt up the cloak by some means— Still, his cloak would remain in the possession of the police if he did not offer legal proof that it belonged to him. The best thing for him, therefore, would be to apply to a certain prominent personage, since this prominent personage, by entering into relation with the proper persons, could greatly expedite the matter.